Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come and gather before you and to, to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word through this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 31. We have seen the finishing of the temple being built, the dedication of the temple, and we have been in the middle of Solomon's prayer to God about what's going on. So, starting at verse 31. If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before you, your altar in this house, then hear you in heaven and do and judge your servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and to justify the righteous, to give him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are smitten down before the enemies because they have sinned against you and have turned again to you and confess their name, confess your name and pray and make supplication unto you in this house, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again into the land which you gave them unto their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sins, when you have afflicted them, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain in your, upon your land, which you have given unto your people for an inheritance. I'm going to stop there because there's a lot more of the same, same things. But it says in verse 31, if any man trespass, and basically this if is uh, if and they will, and it's, they're going to trespass. Solomon knows they're going to trespass. He goes, if they trespass against their navel and an oath be laid upon him and they swear, and this oath comes before the temple or the priest or God in, in essence. Right, so if their promise, their, their oath comes before God, he says, and in this house, he says, then hear in heaven and do and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, and bring, bring his way upon his head and justify the righteous and give them according to his, right, his righteousness. So basically Solomon is saying, this is such a special place to God. When you hear the oath, you will judge the wicked and condemn them and you will accept the righteous and promote them. And, you know, this is still what God does to this day. It is the law of reaping and sowing. When we do wrong, God judges. We don't need to go before the altar of God to, for that to happen. God will do it. All right? And then in verse 33, he says, when. And I hope you note that there's plenty of places in this chapter where he says, when. Not if, but when. When your people are smitten down before their enemies <laughs> because they have sinned, and shall turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication unto them in, in this house. Okay? When we sin and we confess before God, God will forgive. And that's what Solomon's going to say. When they, when they come before you and they, and they sin and they confess, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. God is so merciful he wants to forgive us. But he wants us to turn to him in confession and repentance. And Solomon knows his history a little bit. Because remember, we went through judges where they kept sinning. 
and turning away from God, falling down on their face, and then repenting. God raises up a leader. They're okay for a short period of time. Then they go right back into sin. And finally, after they fall flat on their noses and faces, they, God, they confess their sins, and God brings a leader. And so Solomon says, when you do this, it's not a doubt of if you're going to do this, it's when you do this. And it's the same thing for us as Christians. It's not if we fall flat on our face and, and, and sin. It's when we fall flat on our face and, and sin that we need to confess to God and repent and turn to him. And then we see him forgive. And God is so gracious. He keeps forgiving even when we do the same thing over and over and over again. How do we know that? All we got to do is open up our Bible and look. Israel keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again. And God keeps forgiving them. All through the New Testament, we see the same thing that God, they say is when we, when we do these things over and over again, God will forgive us. Now, you would think that maybe someday we might learn <laughs> and with God in our hearts, we might get convicted and, and get some victories, but we're going to keep making the same mistakes that have been happening for all of time. Adam and Eve started with the rebellion, doing things their own way. God redeemed them. We saw them make their decisions. We saw Cain and Abel do the same thing. We're going to see by the time we get to Noah that the whole world is doing what's right in their own eyes. And God rescues Noah and his family. And we're going to see over and over, we're going to see Abraham in a couple of sins over and over again. The biggest one saying that Sarah's his, Sarah's his sister and having his, having his wife taken into the harem of these kings which is quite amazing when you think about how beautiful she must have been to be taken into the harem of these kings when she's, when she's over 60 and 70 years old. And she's so beautiful that they want to take her to be their bride. You know, and Solomon, uh, Solomon and Abraham on two occasions lies and says, well, technically not lying. She was his half-sister. But she was more than his sister when, you know, when he's telling them this, this half-truth. Uh, and then his son does the same thing with his wife <laughs> later on. So we see over and over the people's sins. And the same sins that we commit in this day and age are the same sins that have been committed from the very beginning. And Solomon says, when they sin and they confess their sin, hear them and forgive them. Because you are there, are, this is the land you gave them. And this is Solomon reminding God, God, you made a promise to them. He hasn't said it here, but he's basically saying, you told Abraham that this land belonged to him and that Jesus' people were going to be blessed. You told Isaac the same thing. You told Jacob the same thing. Then you came along and you told David, my father, he says, the same thing. That this land, that you were going to have a king on the, of the seed of David on the throne of Israel forever. So this is something that Solomon is reminding God. God, we know that these people are going to sin. When they sin and they confess, receive them back. Receive them back. And this is what God does for us. And I am so glad that God is merciful and he is gracious to us. Because I am very happy he doesn't give us what we deserve. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, talked to over the years that just say, I just want what I deserve. And I'm going, you don't want what you deserve. You know, if you're a Christian, you really don't, should understand that you don't want what you deserve because you'd be dead 
And I know you lost people don't know that you're going to be dead, but God says the wages of sin is death, so what you deserve is death. You know, you don't want what we deserve. None of us really want what we deserve. And oftentimes we will recognize that we don't want it for ourselves, and yet we want others to get judged. Yeah, and that's something that to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't want to be judged. I really don't want to see other people judged. Now, I know that God needs to do what it takes to get people saved. And sometimes that means bringing the bottom out from under them and putting them in the gutter and making life miserable for them. Uh, hopefully none of us are that bad where we need God to put us in the gutter before we're going to repent. But many times you don't get saved until you do finally get to the place where you are just out of options. Everything is gone. You don't have a home. You don't, you don't have a job. You don't have a family because you burned all your bridges. And here's Solomon saying, when they get that way, God, and they decide to turn, forgive them. Verse 35 says the same thing. When the heavens are shut up. Not if, but he says, when they are shut up. When you stop giving rain to your people in judgment. All right? Uh, and there is no rain in the earth, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sins when you have afflicted them, in verse 36, then hear you from heaven and forgive their, the sin of your servants and your people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which you have given of your people for an inheritance. One of the things that's being overlooked in our day and age is God judges people even to this day with weather storms locusts plagues droughts is every single one from god not necessarily but a lot of them are and i think a lot of what we're going through in this world today is god's judgment coming on on his people that are rebelling against him we've got droughts going on we've got places that are suffering huge locust plagues right now and nobody's willing to say that that's from God. I'm going to say it's from God. God's trying to get their attention. When he gives us droughts for long periods of time, he's trying to get our attention and say, turn to me. We're having earthquakes happening all over the world in strange places. You know, we're hearing about earthquakes in places that we never hear about earthquakes in. We're hearing about tornadoes in places where tornadoes never hit. Huh? The, the, the COVID virus is probably very much an act of God saying pay attention and unfortunately so many churches have shut down people have backed off they're in fear of what's going on instead of saying turn to God and beg him for forgiveness well it all is and this is what Solomon's saying when these droughts happen when these things happen turn to God this is God calling us and saying, turn, come to me. Now, what we're hearing in spite of all of this is people are blaming everybody and everything. They're running around in fear. We're hearing more and more calls for, for a one-world government to take care of us. And, you know, that's scary because we look and say, wow, that's exactly what Revelation tells us is going to happen. We're going to have a one-world government, and the people are calling and begging for it. And even in America, the people begged the government to protect them, and now they're not happy with the government protecting them, which will be exactly what will happen when we, when we get this one world government that people are begging for. 
they're not going to be happy with the one world government because it is not going to solve their problems that only God can solve. And so we need to keep this in mind. God has a call, and that is for us to trust in him. Always. Always in control, always good, and he has a good plan. We may not recognize it, we may not see it, because we are so busy looking at the problems. And this is the thing that we have to do as Christians. Do I have my eyes focused on God and what he has planned, or am I focusing on my seeming problems? Okay, God has promised that everything will be will work will work out for good not necessarily for my good but for good and i sit there and look at my problems and say god these are just so bad they're awful they're terrible and god's saying i've got a plan i have something in in order we look at elijah he needed food and god stopped feeding him by the brook with the ravens and told him go into town and 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 meet this person and ask them to bake you a cake and water who did he went to the widow had enough food to make a small cake for her and her son, and they were going to die. He said, make one for me first. And she still did it. And she did it. And that's the amazing thing. She did it. And her little cruise of oil and flour did not run out until the rains came and the, and the harvest came. She had food from that time on because of a little bit of faith. Doing what made no sense. To step out in faith and say, okay, prophet, you said that there would be food for us, so I'm going to make you your cake. Noah builds a big boat. Spends 120 years building a boat. There had never been rain according to the Bible. No floods. He's telling everybody, I'm building this because God's going to send water from the sky. Noah, are you totally nuts? There's, there's, water doesn't fall. Water comes up from the ground and waters our plants. And you're telling us water is going to come falling from the sky and, and do what you're calling a flood, covering all the land. You know, Noah, are you crazy? And all of a sudden, God sends him animals. And he's collecting animals. He's collecting all kinds of food for these animals. He's putting in a library and workshops and everything into the ark to, to, to live. And he's going to live for a year on this floating zoo. What faith did he have to be able to do that? Faith always leads to works. And this is what, this is what James tells us. Faith without works is dead. I can tell you all day long that I have faith in God. But if I'm running around trying to take care of all my problems, I'm showing you that I have no faith in God. The churches that have closed when God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, have shown that they don't have faith in God to protect their church. Because they could have done other things. They could have put radio broadcasting in. They could have, there's, there are churches that do satellite ministries who close down their churches as well. And they're already geared toward small group being able to spread out in small groups. And still they close their churches because they didn't have faith that God would protect them in all of this. Now, they have to stand and fall before God. I'm not, I'm not judging them, but I'm just saying, where was your faith? How important was your church to the community? 
It's so important that you just close down because it, there was a disease running around your community. And historically, the church has run into the, the problem areas. They don't run from, you know, there's reports in, in Roman times when they would close a city because of the quarantine and the leaders would say, everybody's out except a bunch of crazy followers of the way that go, are going into the city. You know, why do we do these things? Because we know that this is not our home. Our home is heaven. If we get sick, we know where we're going. If the sick die without Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. So the church goes into the problem areas, not away from the problem areas. Now that doesn't mean we get stupid and we do dumb things about that. But it also doesn't mean that we fear what comes. We have faith that God is in control and that he is trying to grab people's attention. And we move out in that faith and we step out in that faith and we move forward. Not in retreat. Because God says, I will protect you. Now if he wants us to get sick, we get sick. If he doesn't want us to get sick, we'll be like the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace and we come out, you know, didn't we throw three men in the fire? I see four in there, come on out. They didn't come out until they were called. Not because they couldn't. There was nobody that was going to push them back in the fire if they tried to come out. You know, they'd already lost three men throwing, at least three men throwing them in. Nobody was going to try to push them back into the fire if they came out on their own. But they had enough faith that they were walking with God. And the thing about it is when we walk with God in the midst of the fire, we do not get, we do not get singed. We do not get the smell of the fire on us. We don't even notice the fire. We don't notice the storms. And this has been true in my life. When, my, my, when I'm focused on Jesus and I'm walking with God, I don't notice the hardships. And people all around me will go, well, you just went through a hard time. And I look at them and go, did I really? I mean, literally, not, not being hyper-spiritual, but did I really? And I kind of look back and go, oh, I guess there was a lot of hard stuff going on. There are other times when my mind's not focused on God and just little things are knocking me over and putting me all over the place. So the question is, where is our faith placed? Is it really truly placed in God where we're going to say, God, I want you? I want what you want. Is it probable that some of these churches should have closed? I guess so. That's between them and God, and you know, they have to answer. But basically, as far as I'm concerned, they've, told, they've declared that we're not important to the community. You know, and that's sad to me. Because for the last decade, all the Christian magazines are being put out. Is your church relevant to the community? How are you doing? How are you going out beyond your doors? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And we get our first big test, and we close our doors. Yeah. We get our first big test after decade, at least a decade, of talking about how important we're supposed to be to the community, and our first test that comes along, we fail as a, as a group. Not every church, but many. You know, there's no worse than people. God prepares us over and over and over for a test, and then we get into the middle of the test, and we fail. Churches are no different than, than people. And I'm not judging them. I'm just challenging. I really want to challenge them. Get back to what you're supposed to be doing. You know, quit running in fear. Get back to what you're doing and be relevant in your community and not pulled back. 
And we need to be that way. And we need to understand. And we as people need to understand when we go through these trials, all of our trials are just that. They're a test to see what we're going to do. Are we going to stand with God? Or are we going to run away from what we've been trained to do? I think this was an easy trial. Well, it was for me. This wasn't even a trial. This wasn't even a test for me. And that's what I keep telling you guys. You know, this was just me knowing that I'm not giving up because I believe the church is, is so important and reaching out to people and being here because we've had people coming to the church looking for help and asking questions, uh, looking for the support, and we've been here to do it. It wasn't even a question in my mind of, of, of staying open or not staying open. So for me, it wasn't a test. You know, for many of these pastors, it was a test. And I'm not their judge. You know, because they, and I've been judged. I have been judged by several pastors. Why did you stay open and, and expose your people to, to the disease? I'm going, well, because we're taking plenty of precautions. We're, sanitari we're sanitizing. I've told certain people who don't come to church because they are sick enough that I don't want them here. And I've made it very clear to people, if you're, if you're afraid of this, stay home. And I have actually told people who wanted to make fun of certain people, no, if they had fear of it. It's between them and God, not not me. I'm not their judge. I just want to say our church is staying open so that we can minister to people, that we can teach the word of God. We can prepare people to go out and minister. We can reach the people who are coming in to ask questions. And to me, it's amazing that we've had pretty good attendance for the most part on most Sundays, even though we're missing a good eight or nine people that normally would be here because of health issues and people that I really understand being gone for the most part. And yet our attendance has been close to normal. You know, that's God. That was God. It's not, it was not something that's walking by faith, not by sight. You know, there's lots of reasons why they have not done what they stayed open. And that's up to them. And it's between them and God. And some of them, it might be right that they were supposed to. It's between them and God. My job is not to judge them. I present to them why I stayed open and my biblical reasons and all of that, why I stayed open. You know, and this is what comes down to it. When we make those mistakes and we confess, God says, I will forgive. These churches who close down, if they will say, well, we shouldn't have closed down, God forgive us, God's going to forgive them. He's going to give them what they wanted, but they're still going to have to get over the long haul where they have told people that God wasn't enough. And that ultimately is my biggest thing. When the churches have closed down, they have told the people God isn't, isn't enough. And that scares me because that's going to have long-term ramifications because people, when people get afraid, that is when they turn to look for God. Churches closed their doors. They were saying God's not enough. God isn't the answer. You know, and we need to be careful of that. Long-term consequences. Now, by staying open, we made a statement too that we... You know, on one side, people are going to accuse us of not caring about people. And I understand that. I understand that accusation. I've had a lot of pastors tell me that. But I'm going to stay open because I trust God. And I will continue telling people, if you don't want to come, that's fine. Don't come. You know, I'm going to stand on forsake not the assembling of yourselves and so much more as you see the day approaching. And the sad thing to me is churches have already been forsaking the assembling of themselves for decades. It used to be in the first century church that the church met daily. Every single day the church met. Over the last couple hundred years, we've been happy to meet three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. 
Over the last decade, we've had churches dropping down to one service a week. For, for a long time, the church has been forsaking the assembling of ourselves and so much more as we see the day approaching and we get our first big challenge and we say, okay, well, let's get rid of the last one. You know, the, the church isn't that important. Meeting together is not important. So we'll just get rid of the last one. You know, so we look at this and say, what's going on? I am so happy in our church that we actually added a study and a time for people to come. And if it's not open by the end of the month, we're going to open another one when we get to our summer, summer movie nights. I am going to hold up, you know, that God is important. If I lived in this town, I probably would have something going on every day of the week here, some kind of Bible study, something going on every day of the week. Just like they're starting to do it, it yesterday's with their prayer ser- sessions. It is important for Christians to meet together for prayer, for short devotions, for activities that put their focus on God. And when we abandon him, he's going to abandon us. And this is the sad thing. The test came along and people have shown that the assembling of ourselves is not important. There's going to be consequences for that action. There will be. And we need to be able to see. It's not, and Solomon all through this is not if we do these things, when we do these things, when we fail. All right, verse uh, 37. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting mildew, locusts, if there be caterpillar, if the enemy besiege them in the land and their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made in any man and by any people in Israel, which shall know every man the plague in his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house, then hear you from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you know, even you only know the hearts of all the children of Israel, that they may fear you in all the days that they live in the land which you give to our fathers. So again, when all these bad things happen, he said if, but he could have just said, he could have easily said when in this case. If the land gets famine, if it gets pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, caterpillars, enemies, uh, plagues, (laughs) diseases, and they turn to you, forgive. Again, we are in the midst. Now, people are going to say, well, this is man-made. Doesn't matter. God can still, still either allow it or not allow it. He's allowed it to hit the world. He could have stopped it in China. He could have stopped it before it even got out. Why is he trying to do this? He wants the attention of his people. He wants the attention of the lost world. He really, though, wants to start with the attention of his people. Turn and ask for forgiveness. Later on in Chronicles, he's going to say, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and call upon my name, I will forgive. It is up to us as Christians to humble ourselves and call on the name of God for forgiveness for our nation. If you go to Daniel, in Daniel, I think it's 9, where Daniel gives this great prayer for the, for the nation, he keeps using over and over again the words we and I and us. 
Daniel's a pretty righteous man, and all the time, all through there, I think it's 17 times, he identifies himself with all the wickedness of Israel. He was not saying, God, I'm better than them. And this is something we as Christians have to understand. We are not better than the lost world. We are saved. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but we are not better than them. And this is why we need to really examine our lives and say, God, where am I with, God, with you? Because all of us have sin in our life that we have to confess and say, God, I am, I am a sick, worthless, terrible sinner, but thank you that you've saved me. You know, and if we really start understanding that idea, it will change the way we deal with the lost world. If I really start understanding how bad a sinner I am, and you are, as Christians, it will change the way I deal with those that I look and say, wow, that person is really awful. They don't even, they don't have the redeeming quality of you know, reading their Bible and coming to God. Well, duh, let's go out there and tell them. Let's go out there and share that. Our world is getting to the place, of, as in the days of Noah, where everybody's doing what is right in their own sight, and God is calling us and saying, repent. And he's doing it through natural disasters and viruses and plagues and insect infestations and droughts. And he's saying, pay attention. And he's going to keep doing this and it's going to keep getting worse until we get to the point where the rapture comes and God takes the church out and the tribulation period starts unless we have a revival. And there may still be a revival out there. I'm not going to say that there won't be a revival. There's still a chance that God will have a great revival that sweeps this world and says, okay, here's round four. All right, here's your another great revival to sweep your world. We'll give you another 50, 60, 70 years of following me. But it's going to start with the house of God. Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to say, God, I have not done enough to, give, to work in getting out the word? This is why in this church we're praying for the lost. This is why I've been recently been pushing for us to pray. Find one person that's on our heart to pray for them to get saved and open our mouth and talk to them and see if, they, if God won't do a miraculous thing and save one person. And then, of course, after that, I'm going to say pick another person. But, you know, what will God do if we truly, truly start focusing in on one person for each one of us and we start praying for that person and watch God work, especially if we will open our mouth and start talking to them. It is amazing how God will fill your mouth if you will just get the boldness to talk to somebody and then watch what he does. Watch what he does to see lives changed. And this is the thing that Solomon is here doing. God, when you send all these problems and they go to you, then you will hear and forgive. If we humble ourselves, God will hear and he will deliver. Starting with us and starting with our portion of the world, the church was told to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Many Christians stop, stop. They don't even go to Jerusalem, their own home. I'm going to tell you right now, talking to your own family is the hardest one to witness to. Because they'll tell you, well, I know how bad you are. This is only, this is only pretend. We'll, we'll see what happens in a year when the, when the newness wears off and and all this isn't new for you, and you're going back to your drugs, your alcohol, your, your lifestyle. 
Now, they're hard to witness to. Our friends are hard to witness to because we're afraid that they might not be our friends anymore. And we're so loving to them and so wanting to be their friend that we love them right into hell because we don't tell them about Jesus. We need to get boldness with the Holy Spirit and say, God, help me. Help me to be more bold with my witness. Help me to share you with other people and be able to do all of this. And it says that they may fear God all their days and they live in the land that you gave their fathers. God has given us a rest. This is the great news. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought faith rest into our life. I don't have to worry about it because this is not my home. Whatever happens in this world is not my home. If I went through pure hell in this world, it's not my home and I've got an eternity of heaven to enjoy. The good news is God is here. And I indwell in Christ and I get to live inside Christ and he is my fortress when I decide to live in him and rest in him. And even though things go bad, I dwell in him and he makes me have a peaceful time in this world. And when I get to heaven, there's not going to be any trials to have to be endured because it'll be a new heaven and new earth with nothing bad. Nothing. We can't even fathom what the new heaven and earth will be like. That no problems, no issues. Verse 44, uh, 41 says, Moreover, concerning the stranger that is not of your people, Israel, but comes out of a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your name, great name and of your strong hand and your stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear you in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the stranger calls to you that all people of the earth may know your name to fear you and do your people Israel that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Solomon recognizes that God, the world, is going to get to know you. The world. Now the Jews made it very difficult for the Gentiles to come in. They even put a great big sign in the temple saying, no Gentiles beyond this point. You had to become a Jew to be able to worship God. Solomon was recognizing that the Jews, the Gentiles were going to come and worship God. All through the Pentateuch, God says they are to come and worship me. And the Jewish leaders put in all kinds of blockades. The priests put all kinds of blockades in front of the people so they could not come to, the, to worship God. And Solomon's recognizing not only if, but he goes, when. is another one of those, when they come to worship you, God, you will hear. God, you will forgive. This is the beautiful thing that we have about this. When God's people live by faith in him and trust in him, people are drawn to that lifestyle because they see something that they want. When we live by faith in peace with God and go through the trials and temptations and troubles and they look at us and say, wow, you have something. And they're not finding it. How do we know? 
they're committing suicide, they're, they're getting themselves drunk out of their minds, they're, they're, they're in their alcohol and their drugs and, and not finding peace. They get their fame and their fortune and they're not happy with that. How again do we know? Because they get into their alcohol and their drugs and their suicides to tell us that they did not find peace in their money, in their fame, in, their, in anything else. They need to come to God. We are to be a light. Jesus said you are to take your light and put it on a stand so people can see it. And you know what? When we live for God, people notice. People notice. And that is what the good side of uh, lifestyle evangelism is. People get to see us living righteous lives. When they ask us about Jesus, we need to open our mouth and talk. As a matter of fact, we need to open our mouth and talk more even before they ask. But you know, here Solomon is saying, when the Gentiles come, they're going to worship you. And you're going to honor them. We need to be careful as church members that we don't make it difficult for non-church people. You know, look down our nose when they come in in their, in their ragged clothes or their inappropriate dressed clothes where they don't know how to act when they're in church or a Bible study. We need to be careful that we're not looking down our nose at them because they don't know what to do. We go, we lovingly help them and we give them the gospel message because they need it. They need to hear it. And too many churches make it difficult for the lost people to come to Christ because they're made to feel unwelcome. I want people to come into this church you know, and, and learn and grow. I want people to come in that don't seem to fit because they might be just the ones that need, need the message. We might even learn something from them. I, had a, I went to a church where a guy purposely kept bringing in bikers and, and, and convicts with their tattoos that were, they were strong Christians to just see how the church was going to treat them. Just to see if they would be accepted by the people of the church. And he was not bringing lost ones in. He was bringing people he knew were saved but just looked the part of, of the biker and the, and, the, and the people that nobody wanted. And the sad thing was sometimes the church did, did good but the sad part was sometimes the church pushed back against them. What is our attitude when people like that come in? I hope we're as accepting as possible to them. I'm going to be, and I want the church to be. You know, we've had people come in here that are totally drunk and smell drunk, and they've been made welcome, and they hear the gospel. I've had people come in, we've had people come in here that are stoned out of their mind. You know, is that my favorite type of people to have in the church? No, but you know what? If the gospel message can penetrate that, that area, thank you, God. Thank you. Your word will get through, and we're going to make them welcome. And I've said it over and over. Anybody who's welcome in this church, I don't care what their lifestyle is. They're welcome in this church up to the point where they're trying to get my church to commit, you know, say what they're doing is okay and join them. At that point, we have a problem. But to come in and worship with us, no problem whatsoever. Not a problem whatsoever, but trying to get people to join in their lifestyle, now we've got a problem. And that's not going to be allowed. But to come in with alternate lifestyles and different problems, those are the exact people we want in our church. Judging is the part that we have the problem with the most as Christians. 
You know, the favorite verse for people now is now Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, but they forget the last part of it. By what measure you judge, you shall be judged. And Jesus wasn't telling us not to judge. He was just telling us, make sure we judge by the right criteria. I'm not going to judge anybody coming in by where they are, but I am going to tell them what Jesus says. And if they feel judged because of it, that's not my problem. Jesus says that adultery is a sin. He says that stealing is a sin. He says homosexuality is a sin. He says that dressing un unmodestly is a sin. Okay, he says being drunk is a sin. I still want people here to hear the word of God and let God work on their heart. And then God can get hold of their heart and change them. I don't want good sinners. I want saved sinners. Okay? I don't want people who think they're good. Jesus had all kinds of problems with good sinners. The scribes and Pharisees were good sinners. They thought they were good. People thought they were good, but they were terrible sinners who didn't believe in God. I like people that know that they have a problem with sin because they're easier to convert. Because the first step of salvation is to convince somebody that you're a sinner. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God is the first step. And that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life is part two. And then we start telling them that Jesus died for you because he loves you. Jesus on the cross looked down on the people that are crucifying him and, and, and making fun of him and, and probably throwing rocks and everything at him at that point. They were still condemning him and making fun of him. And his words were, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is hard to do. Stephen, the first martyr for Christianity, was being stoned, looked up into heaven and said, Behold, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is our attitude that way toward people? Father, forgive them. They're killing me. They're hurting me. Father, forgive them. That is when we know that we are where we're supposed to be with God. It is not easy. It is not easy to not judge people. It is not easy to forgive. It is not easy to show love to the people that are being unloving. But that's exactly what God wants us to do. Why? Because he indwells us. He crucifies our flesh and then he gets to come out of us and show that love and forgiveness. The more he has changed us, the more we will be loving, the more we will be forgiving. And hope possibly there will come a day when we will have to stand up there and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they're getting ready to cut off our head or, or electrocute us or whatever, the, whatever torture they're going to use on us and be ready to say, Father, forgive them. Because that is what will change lives. Stephen's act of saying, Father, forgive them, changed hearts. Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, made the centurion look up and said, this definitely was the son of God. Truly, this was the son of God, you know, because nobody would forgive. He knew that that's not what people did. When we live like Christ, people notice and they will respond to that action. And we will be living out that, out him in front of others and showing them that we have what they want. Even if they kill us, they will still see they have something. Several years ago, when the, when the Coptic Christians were, were executed in Egypt, 
what did we hear about that? If you heard anything at all about it, which very little was told about it, as their heads were being cut off, they were singing praises to God. And that went viral. I remember that. That went viral. Christians praising God as they went to their death. Willingly. It touched people's hearts. A lot of people have forgotten it since then. But you know, this will be where we're going to be at some point in our days. There's going to come a time when we're going to be persecuted. And we're going to have to say, God, forgive them. I trust in you. Maybe to our death. Maybe not to our death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thoroughly thought that they were going to die. That's what they told Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we may die, and they, and they probably said, we probably will die, but our God is able to deliver us, but we will not bow to your idol. Are we as Christians ready to stand for Christ, no matter what? No matter what. So far in America, we've been very fortunate. We haven't had to pay with our life yet in America. We feel like it's really bad if people make fun of us. It's getting worse. And it's going to be times when we're going to be judged. We're going to be criticized. We may even face death. We need to go, God, I need enough faith in you to stand up for you no matter what. Job stood firm with God. Even though he didn't understand what was going on with God, he did not understand why he'd lost everything. He was a prosperity gospel person. He believed that if you did right, you got blessed. God was trying to teach Job a lesson through all of this as well. Job, you don't understand me. You think that the blessings are my reward for you. You're not really looking at me. Job had to learn a lesson through all of that. Every time we go through a lesson for other people to see and go through a trial, God is trying to teach us something as well. Do we truly believe what he says? Do we truly live for him? Or do I fail? Do I fail? Unfortunately, more often than not, we fail. And then we regroup. Go, God, I really thought I believed in you. I guess I didn't. Okay, God, I really truly believe you now. And we wait for the next time he sends that test. And hopefully we pass it the second time. But we don't always pass it the second time. And you know, the hard thing about this is when God sends a test our way, we will say things like, God, I don't know where you're at. God, where are you? I don't understand. But the thing I tell the students at the, at the prison when I'm giving a test, I'm going, well, can't you help me answer this question? I need help. I go, it's not my test. The teacher is not there during the test to give you the answers. The test is to say, do you know the answers? When God gives us a test, he stands back and says, okay, you've got all the information you need to pass this test. Are you going to pass the test? Open the book. Uh, remember, what I've been, remember what you've been told. Remember what you said you believed. All these pastors who have closed their churches believe in this, will tell you that they believe in the assembling of themselves and so much more as you see the day approaching and yet they failed the test when it came, came, came forward and closed down their churches and said, God, I don't have enough faith to trust in you in this situation. I'm not judging it because I fail in plenty of areas and we all fail in plenty of areas. 
How many places have we gone, God, I trust you. I really believe, God, that you work all things together for good. God, I don't know. This, this problem is just too much. There's no way that this problem can work together for good. And we fail. And yet we'll say clearly that we believe that all things work together for good. We believe that God is always good all the time. And yet we'll get into a problem and go, God, how can this be? God, you, you must have lost your mind. I, this can't be good, God. You totally lost your mind. And we're never going to say that to them. But in our actions, we say just that. And actions speak louder than words, and the people see it. When we walk with God and we stand with God and stand firm with God, people see it and they notice. And the world takes notice. When we fall flat on our face, the world notices. Now the good news is even when we fall flat on our face, we confess to God our sin, we repent, God puts us right back in where we are, and we may have to do some apologizing. When people go, well, I thought you believed God. You know, you're right. I, I thought I did too, and I really blew it. I am so sorry. I've already repented to God, but I just want to tell you, I am sorry for being a bad, bad example of a Christian to you. Do you know how that will blow people's minds when you apologize them, to them for not being a good Christian? Because that's not what they would do. They'd make all kinds of excuses about how it wasn't, you know, it was human nature, it was whatever. Unfortunately, we usually do the same thing. Well, you know, God, I just, uh, my human nature got the better of me. I really didn't sin. I just lived the way I normally live. And God's saying, I'm sorry for you. You were supposed to confess and repent so we could retry this test again. The power of confession is not just before God. I have had some people can actually apologize for living the lifestyle that they've done. My dad actually was impacted by a man who had sinned greatly in front of him, who was preaching to him you know, and, and witnessing to him, blew my dad's mind that this Christian apologized to him for being a bad Christian. Now, he didn't get saved immediately after that, but that's still part of his testimony of somebody who had touched his life with a bad example. Does that mean we should go out and be bad so that grace can abound and we can apologize? No. But it does mean that grace abounds when we do sin. And we can use that opportunity to share with others that, hey, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just, I am human, but I really made a bad choice here. I didn't obey God during this thing. I just want to apologize to you. I've already apologized to God and he's forgiven me. I just want to apologize to you for being a bad example. Now, you do it to every single person? No, but if you're talking to somebody who's We're going to throw that into your face and you say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. Me, be sorry. Don't don't just say the words, I'm sorry. I hate it when parents make their kids say, you know, say, I'm sorry, and the kids don't mean it. You know, we don't want to be that way. But if you're truly sorry for the example you put before somebody and and they were affected by it, apologize to them. Say, you know what? I really lost my temper and I really shouldn't have done it. I am so sorry. I've already asked God to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me because I was not being a good Christian at that time. And that we all have to do this at, some, at points. Some of the hardest things to do for a parent is to have to apologize to their kids for their, for their being a bad example and not doing things the right way. And most parents won't. They have too much pride to, to, to apologize to their kids. And many of us have too much pride to apologize to the lost world that is watching us when we sin. We have to lose pride. Pride is so destructive in our life. It'll make us make bad decisions. It'll keep us from being a good, good disciple. We need to lose that pride and that arrogance that comes along with it.
because God doesn't like pride. He says pride goes before destruction. If you're a proud person, God is going to make sure that you fall flat on your face. Every time it will happen. And we need to be very careful of that. We as Christians cannot be proud of, of our walk with God because we all have problems. And maybe our problems aren't out in the open for everybody to see. Maybe our problems are mostly mental problems. But you know, those are almost worse than the, in the big problems because I can, I can be, have lustful thoughts and nobody knows about my lustful thoughts, you know, because I'm not out sleeping around and, and committing, the, committing the crime for everybody to see. But God says, you're just as bad. Your thoughts are just as bad. Nobody knows about them. You know, I got a lot of anger in my heart, but I'm pretty much hiding it. No, you're not. You know, you're not really hiding your lustful thoughts. You know, there are many people who know, to, know that they're having those lustful thoughts. They know that you're having those anger thoughts. You know, you're not hiding them as well as you think you are. So God says, I want all of these out. I want you to be living for me. And it's hard. Because God's going to keep showing us how we're not living for him. He's going to show us how deceitfully wicked our heart really is. And every time we get rid of something and we start getting proud that I got rid of something, God says, okay, let's look a little deeper in this, this little treasure chest that you have there and see all the wicked awfulness. You know, and it's, it's getting scary to me because there was a time I used to think that I was pretty good. You know, and I almost got too much righteous self-righteousness and God has said no let's let's take a real look at who you are and he is showing me things I'm going God please quit showing me things I'm tired of seeing all this stuff you know can can you just let me be there for a little while and basically he says no and why because he wants us to stay humble toward the lost because if he did not keep showing us our heart we'd get very arrogant and proud that we have cleared out our hearts we we are there we have arrived. And God's going to say, no, you haven't arrived. We have not arrived until the day that we die and are glorified or the day that we get raptured. Now, I don't know which one's going to come first for us. I'm hoping the rapture comes soon. But if it doesn't, we're going to die. There's a 100% chance that we're going to die outside of the rapture. All right? There's no if we die. There's not when, you know, you know, you know every single human being that has been born has died at some point, or will die. The only way we get out without death is by the rapture where God takes us straight to heaven. Enoch. Huh? Well, Enoch and Elijah, the two people who, and that's why I believe that they will be the two witnesses in the end days that the, because it's appointed in a man to die and after that the judgment, I think, because they never died, they're going to be the two that stand at the, at the temple and get killed. <laughs> that's my belief. It's, it's, other people believe it's other people and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But you know, where are we with God? Are we willing to stand before God and say, God, I want to be your servant. I want to see repentance. And be, just, be very sure that when you're in the middle of the trials, God will always seem distant. He's right there. He hasn't abandoned you. But he is saying, are you going to stand in what you know? And, my, and I tell you, I truly believe that God says all things work together for good, and I really do grab hold of that, and you've all seen that over time. I grab hold of that. God, I don't understand, but you say it's going to be for good. I'm going to grab onto that and hold on to it. I have failed at times, but for the most part, I grab hold of that. When God says, I'm going to test you, do we hold on? 
or do we fail? Now, I've had plenty of other failures. <laughs> There's other places where I don't stand strong, but God has really taught me all things work together for good, and that's why I usually use the word when things seem to be bad. You know, we think they're bad. You know, if we look at it by sight, it's bad, it's terrible, it's awful. But if we remember that all things work together for good, the answer is things seem bad. Now, we need to take and walk in that. It's not easy. It's not easy to do all of this. But God says, do you trust in me? All of our tests are just saying, do you trust in me? And are we going to stand for him? All right, we didn't get as far as I thought, but we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to trust you more. Help us to learn to focus on you in all things, Lord. There is no if problems come into our lives. It's when problems come into our lives. It isn't when we fail. Uh, if we fail, it's when we fail. Lord, help us get strength. Lord, help us to be humble when we fail as well. And keep with us. And Lord, we just ask you to always show us your repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.